Welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast by Scott L. Wyatt, President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript for today's podcast. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. I'm your host, Steve Meredith, and I'm joined in studio today, as I always am, by President Wyatt. Scott, how are you? Terrific. Thanks, Steve. There's spring in the air. Yeah, it's beautiful outside this morning. Yep. We uh, we took a walk yesterday afternoon and noticed that the trees were all just about to bloom, and uh, great news great for people that love the outdoors like you do and and uh, bad news for the allergy sufferers it's just it's just nice to have uh, the weather warm and the sun to come out it just puts a little bit of a coat of optimism on everything going it does on. yeah it does well we have been talking for uh, the last few podcasts about an article or a series of articles really that was bundled together by the Chronicle for higher education called The Looming Enrollment Crisis. And one of the contributors penned a small article whose title was, No, Your College is Not an Exception. And that just really caught my eye. And I thought, you know, we should talk to her on the podcast. So <laughs> so why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest and we'll talk to her. Well, we're delighted to have uh, live from Richmond, Virginia. Well, live for us. It won't yeah, be live, live by on the, the time phone. the audience hears it. <laughs> Delighted to have Madeline Reiner um, from Richmond, Virginia, Vice President for Consulting and Dean of Enrollment Services at EAB. Welcome, Madeline. Thank you very, very much. I really appreciate that, Scott and Steve. It's a big privilege for me to join you. Um, just to provide a context, I'm glad you like that title because I that's actually been the theme of conversations that I have had um, on the campuses where I've served. I'm a long-term vice president for enrollment. I actually served in that role at five different institutions. Um, Lest you think it's because I can't keep a job. It's because um, (laughs) I'm a builder and a fixer. I've decided um, professionally um, maintaining is is not as intriguing to me. Um, I'm originally from the West Coast. I grew up outside of Seattle. I'm a very proud Whitman College graduate. I also have a master's of business administration from um, Willamette University in Oregon. And so I, um, as I think about enrollment issues, I bring not just uh, an enrollment manager's lens, but also a marketing communication lens, and then um, an economics and finance sort of perspective. Um, Because, of course, enrollment, it drives revenue at most institutions. So again, thanks for having me join you. Yeah, well, it's it's really an honor for us. So thanks for giving us some of your time this morning. Um, Well... Your college is not an exception. An exception. Yeah. What do you mean by that? So my um, my observation um, as an enrollment leader, and certainly as I would talk to my friends and colleagues across the country, is um, most people look at the looming demographic crisis in twenty five, twenty six. It's always it's that's the other guy's problem because we, whatever our institution is, we are so special. And we have such a unique sort of offering uh, to students and families that 
that the trend that could be impacting other people. It just it won't it won't impact us. And so I, I feel like it's important to have um, honest conversations, um, and sometimes they end up being pretty direct conversations to say, um, actually, uh, in the in the mind of the public, we all do more or less the same thing, and we do it more or less close to them, more or less well or not well, um, more or less online or in a virtual format, and that sort of the the traditional, um, if we build it because we're here, they will come. Um, that that just isn't working anymore. And I, I think especially, um, and this was borne out in the results that then became clear later in the fall of 2019, because so many schools last year did not meet their enrollment headcount or net tuition, tuition revenue goals or both, um, that there was, because I'm a huge Star Wars fan, there was a big disturbance in the force. <laughs> and many people... <laughs> Many people have believed that, you know, you see the, you see all the demographic charts and everyone is, you know, reading Nathan Gras's work and trying to plan ahead. You thought you had some time to inoculate yourself against yourself, your institution against these, you know, pretty, pretty discouraging sort of um, uh, market demand numbers. And yet with the disturbance this last fall, I think it, it um, to me, it makes even more clear the notion when the most elite schools in the country are, are failing to meet their enrollment goals. Um, for those who have to work really hard every year to do that, you need you just need to recognize you're not that special, and you're going to need to you're going to need to think about things differently to be successful in in both the current market and the market that's coming. You know, we we sometimes think and and find some basis in the data to suggest that those of us that are in some of these uh, Western states have some immunity to this enrollment crisis, but. I was visiting with uh, the presidents of all of the Big Sky Athletic Conference schools. So as you, for, for those that are listening, the presidents of the schools in an athletic conference constitute the governing board of the conference. So we, we have to get together several times a year and plan and strategize and work through things for our conference. And I was talking to one of the presidents of... Um, one of our schools in Montana who said that over the last eight years, their enrollments have dropped 40%. Wow. That's the University of Montana. And they would have thought they were immune from this. Because they're the flagship. They're the or, flagship school. Yeah. They're in a Western state. Um, that's not unique. I think that most of the universities in the Big Sky Conference, which is Montana, Idaho, Utah, Arizona, Arizona. Mm-hmm. Colorado, couples, you know, there's one in um, Portland, Washington. one in Washington. Most of those um, institutions are struggling right now with one thing or another. So we're not immune. We're not immune. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, no, you're, you're not. Um, one, of the, one of the challenges is that for, uh, there are states in the country, there are a few states in the country who will have a growing demographic. Um, but there are some that are holding steady. Um, but of course, then, like a horde of locusts, enrollment managers are convening on those states. But I, I know you're a former politician, Scott, and um, <laughs> just like just just like just like politics, uh, higher education is primarily local, and it you know you can you can have a national audience, but still, most people do not travel more than a couple hundred miles to go to to go to college. And, and the vast majority are traveling far less 
than a couple of hundred miles. And so um, for a school, let's say in the Northeast, which has been having enrollment, uh, high school graduate declines for years, for them to believe that they can just miraculously mount a successful strategy in Florida or in Texas, I mean, it's, it's a good option, but it's not going to save them because it will just, it's just really hard to persuade students to go that far from home. So I think um, the, these, are, these are challenging times for institutions, but what you very kindly didn't say is that um, there are sort of, there are some winners and losers even in our, in our present environment. Um, and, and, and winning and losing is not totally driven by shrewdness about um, enrollment practices. Um, it's also driven by academic offerings, positioning, um, an institution's very clear sense of self and capacity to communicate that um, to all their relevant audiences. But yeah, we definitely, you would, one would not expect the University of Montana to be struggling, but, but we know that they are. Yeah, and, and it's a long list. You know, there we've, I don't remember what the last count was of how many universities in the United States have closed or merged in order to survive, but it's a growing list. And, and this, um, this particular climate that we're in, I don't want to spend too much talking, time talking about the coronavirus, but this particular climate we're in is, is, um, is just one more dynamic that's going to have an impact on our future. It seems to me that the message ought to be, we're all a little vulnerable and we need to be our best. And being our best is is something that we don't always know what that is, I think. One of the one of the things that you wrote in your article, there's a line here that I thought was just fascinating, and I'd love to explore that just a little bit with you, Madeline. You wrote, most families view college as a transaction, not as a time of transformation. Them's, them's fighting words for faculty. <laughs> yeah. We, those are words we don't want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Would, would you talk to us about that? Sure. So, um, I have always believed that one of the most important roles an, an enrollment leader plays at an institution is to bring back um, the reality of the outside world to the academy. Because, you know, universities are these wonderful bubbles and, and faculty members who talk to each other and then they talk to their faculty colleagues at other places. And there maybe faculty are impacted when their own children are going through the college search, and maybe that turns a light on. But often, um, especially at private schools, if there's some sort of tuition benefit, they're indemnified from having to make choices based on financial realities. And so, when you think about, so when in all of the work that that I would do as an enrollment leader with families, I mean, people are willing to make the investment in higher education. It isn't that they're unwilling, for the most part. There's more questioning of the value of a college degree. But in exchange, what they're looking for is assurance that the investment of the student's time and the investment of the family's money is going to lead to the outcome that they desire. And for the vast majority of students, that immediate outcome would be meaningful work. So the, the fact that students are really looking for a transaction, that they're really hoping to come and get a job, doesn't mean that we can't be super transformative for them in their lives, right? Correct. Um, I mean, education is transformative. It changes young people's lives. But of course, they can't really figure out how that happens. And it sounds a little scary. 
so my my advice to faculty always is it isn't that this doesn't happen. It's that it happens once they arrive. Because, of course, we, I mean, if you're in higher education, you absolutely believe in the transformative power, and it, it changes people's futures. It changes them economically. It changes them in terms of their engagement with their community, you know, provides better health and quality of life. But the, those sound kind of abstract. So with families, if you can lead with, you know, here, here are the demonstrable outcomes that we can share with you about um, your, your likely path if you're a student at this university, and then um, let the transformation occur organically as it absolutely will. Yeah, we, we, um, I remember a discussion with one of our English faculty members who's a wonderful faculty member, but said to me, um, I don't want anything about what I teach to be occupational. I want them to learn how to read poetry for the sake of reading poetry, and I don't, I don't want anything else to be there. I just want this to be a pure learning experience. And, um, and I, think, I think the answer at the time was, we'll go for it. But, but please know that we can't recruit students here to read poetry without there being an outcome more than just a great learning experience. So our job kind of is, I think what you're saying too, our job is, is to help students understand the value of getting the education towards their future jobs. And then we've got to be able to show that students are getting jobs. So it's, it's on the inside and outside. But between those two, as they're preparing for jobs, we can give them all kinds of things to excite them about learning and everything else. And as much as, um, you know, I'm a music guy, so learning learning music for the sake of learning music is a wonderful thing. But there, there are things you learn in, in learning music and in learning poetry that help you in your work. And and uh, I've always thought that while while it's wonderful to imagine that that students are taking only this this shared joy of whatever it is that we're studying together, the truth is they are also learning uh, in many. You know, I'm like a choir guy, for example. They're learning teamwork skills. They're learning how to work with others in small groups and large groups. They're learning how to memorize. That's a very important skill. Um, and in reading poetry, uh, you know, there are soft skills that people take from a creative writing class or a poetry class that are very helpful, actually, and, and helpful even in the minds of employers. We actually regularly get people that are employers say, we, we wish people wrote better or we wish they spoke better. You know, we wish they had greater communication skills. So, so even the very, um, the very highest study of art in its most esoteric sense can also be very meaningful to you in a job. I like, I like to think that every moment is a teachable moment with young people or, or uh, learners of any age, really. There are teachable moments. And, and I feel like the best learning happens when students get really excited about a discipline. And often what really excites them is not the idea like, oh, this is going to lead to a job, although that's their end goal. But it's um, that there's a, that the passion that a professor brings to a discipline absolutely. and their excitement and enthusiasm is absolutely um, contagious for students. And and I also feel that um, faculty members, if it just feels like, oh, my, as, as this case you described with your English colleague, 
um, you know, that's where the really good work of, of career development teams and others, I think, really tie in because they are tied to the real world and to employers, and they are the ones who help students understand. Here's how I translate the fact that I learned how to read amazing poetry and then to write about it in a cogent and meaningful way. Well, employers, you're absolutely right, Steve. Employers are looking for that all day long. And so helping students understand that some of the things that they think this may not be relevant, in fact, will be exactly relevant. But I think helping them connect the dots, and faculty members can do that because their own current students, if you're, well, if you could, without coronavirus, have a program, a big program on campus for your admitted students. Often, students and faculty members partner up. And so the faculty members talked about the discipline and the import of the discipline and, and, and its value. And then students are there talking about, and here's how I translated that into internships in the summer. And here's how I'm thinking about leveraging my major in creative writing um, into um, what, what's going to be really exciting and meaningful employment for me. And most importantly, the kind of employment that would allow them to pay on their student loans if they have them. But I think um, I, I want faculty members to be really excited about the work that they do even if it's not accounting or something that's directly professionally related, because all of it will help to make the student um, a happier and, and likely more productive employee once they do work. Madeline, you've been, you've been involved in a lot of organizations, five different universities, um, helping them with their enrollment management. You've been a trustee of the college board. You're involved with NACAC um, right now. There aren't that many people in the country that, and you're a consultant now helping lots of universities. There aren't that many people that, that, that really understand um, this better than you, the, the kind of messaging to students, what they're looking for, how we can make that a meaningful experience, how we can keep our institutions vibrant, alive, and growing. Um, you also said something um, earlier that I'd love to hear more about, and that is that families and students count on universities to do the right thing. What, what, talk about that, if you would. Well, I think um, in addition to the investment of time and money, um, everyone who is attending college, whether it's a two-year program, a four-year undergraduate degree, um, everyone brings a lot of hopes and dreams for that academic um, and personal transformation if you will, um, they bring those hopes and dreams to the table. And so when, of course, colleges and universities, they are their own business entities and they need to be concerned about um, being successful and, you know, having the financial resources to provide the educational opportunities that they do. But at the same time, um, especially um, in times when uh, the demographics suggest that, that, that those who are going to college is changing and sadly there will just be fewer of them going forward, that, that that there are likely to be winners and losers in this scenario and that those schools who I think will be the most successful will be those who bring um, compassion and empathy and caring for families and, and students in whatever situations they find themselves and, and at the same time are um, just incredibly honest about who they are and as I want to say and what they stand for because standing for something in the challenging market is really important. And of course, when you stand for something, then you're clearly saying, and then there's some things that, that are not the things we stand for. They're not the things that we do really well. But I believe that, um, that, that making good decisions in the interest of students means 
being really authentic about who you are and who you best serve and, and allowing, and allowing that to sort of pay itself forward, um, into success. Because when you stand for everything in the minds of families, you really, you stand for nothing because they can't, they can't understand how you're different from the other options that they're pursuing. And most of them are low, but they can tie those hopes and dreams into, um, you know, the, the right location, the right program, um, the right size of community or kind of community that's really going to help them grow into the person that they hope to be. Can you, can you give us an example of that? Can you, can um, you think of us? Being, authentic, being yeah. authentic about yourself? Yeah. Well, one of the things that I've um, been challenging people with in um, my new role in the last few months is to ask people, what, what's your elevator pitch, which is the business way of saying, what's the 20-second introduction to your university, to a person who really doesn't know you at all? And most people sort of look at me like, oh, my goodness. And, and, I'm, and, and or they'll go to, well, we're really friendly or we're small. And I'm like, okay, so friendly is pretty much table stakes in any kind of market where you're serving people. I said, and small is not a point of distinction at all. So I, I think um, it, it's a little bit of hard internal work, but it can be really great work for community to come together about we're going to be really clear about who we are. Um, and then, and then focus our communication around that because by being really clear who we are and, um, and communicating that effectively, people will understand us and people want to buy things, if you will, um, that, that they at least feel like they have a handle on. Like, what is it that I'm getting? So if your if a big primary focus is, um, serving local employers and how does that work? So everybody gets an internship for this kind of thing. Talk about that. Um, if you're a school that requires every student to have an off-campus study experience because you're, one of your um, core values is building uh, cultural and global competence, talk about that. It doesn't necessarily make you unique in the market. There's not a lot of uniqueness, but it does mean these are the things that every person who comes to our place can expect to, to experience. And it gives students and families a, a chance to measure themselves against it to say, is this going to be my best? college bit. Sometimes that's a challenge because mm-hmm. we we live in a world where there's, I don't know how many, a thousand, <laughs> I don't know what the number is, um, public regional universities. And in some ways, we're all the same right. in a different community. Well, I agree. But, but you're, there's always, there are always differences in culture. It's culture. So um, here's a great enrollment example. I mean, it's terrifying to think as a professional that you put your professional success in the hands of 17 and 18-year-olds. But in fact, you do. And even though I feel like I'm old, um, I still remember how I feel when my father and I made college visits. And there is often for people the moment where they step on campus and they go, oh, yeah, this is the place for somebody like me. And of course, the me is unique to them. But they walk around and they see people and they see how people are interacting and they spend it on a class or two and they see how faculty members are interacting with students. Again, everybody has their own unique piece of what it is that makes them feel most comfortable. But it is that this is a place for somebody like me. And even though students, even though you can't articulate it and a student couldn't either, some of it is about the culture of the place. Is it a competitive place? Is it a friendly place? Is it a supportive place? Is it 
I mean, it's, it's all these sort of, you know, subliminal messages that students pick up. And I, I, I do think that whether or not we think that we, that we project that as a college or university, you do when people step on your campus. You know, does everybody talk to them and say hello? Does no one talk to them and say hello? Do they wish no one would talk to them and say hello? Right. All of that sort right. of unique to the student. But I do think that, um, that people do form impressions of you when you come on campus based on what they see and experience and that, that they're forming a picture about you and who you are, even if you're not trying to um, expressly communicate what that is. I mean, I think student steps are pretty good, actually, even though, again, it terrifies me. But people know, you know when you walk in a place where you're like, this is a great school but this is not a great school for me. Do you think that authenticity in messaging, um, do you think that will, as things become more and more competitive, do you think that will begin to drive programmatic changes? Uh, uh, We've been watching with some interest the University of Tulsa, which which had a long history of being primarily, I think, a petroleum engineering school and and other science-related things. And then then with... um, the, the same growth that virtually every university went through and kind of the Walmartizing of higher ed. Every, they be, tried to be everything to everyone. And they've recently just said, you know what, we're going to return to our roots and we're going to uh, mostly discharge uh, our, our folks that teach liberal education and, because we're going to return to what we have traditionally done the best and is our strongest suit. Do you see that happening as... That, you know, becoming a more nationwide trend. I do. Whether whether it happens that you diversified your academic programs and then think, well, that didn't that didn't work in the way that we, of course, had hoped that it would, and you you return to your roots. Um, I think in some cases, you know, for schools that are, um, and this is primarily all where I have worked, for schools that are primarily liberal arts and sciences. You know, I mean, the number of students who want to study English and history, I mean, nationally, that has really declined. Right. And that's a sad commentary because these are fabulous and meaningful disciplines, um, both of them for some similar and then some, for some different reasons. So I think that figuring out um, how to both um, educate young people in ways that colleges and universities believe will be meaningful and helpful to them in their professional careers and yet at the same time, not abandoning some of the traditional disciplines um, that have, you know, have driven the development of higher ed, higher ed in the U.S. for more than 200 years. I think there's sort of a, there's a balance to be walked there. And honestly, I don't, I don't know what it looks like because I think individual schools kind of have to figure it, figure that out. But it could be that the pure study of liberal arts becomes, um, becomes a smaller sort of even more boutique kind of opportunity for students than it is today, and that other institutions really double down on um, sort of more what would be perceived as more professional majors, business as opposed to just economics, and adding communication and um, having business schools with accounting majors, things of that kind. But I think, um, again, and it's easy for me to say because I'm not worried about, um, I worry about a lot of institutions and their um, financial vitality. Um, turning away from the thing that you, things you have done traditionally to move in new directions, there's there's risk associated with that as well. And so I'm I live in this sort of my glass is always kind of half full. 
I don't want the pure liberal arts, which were so meaningful to me in my intellectual development, to go away. But I also think that those who prosper will be those who are the most able to articulate how these more esoteric disciplines are preparing you for success professionally um, to, to connect those dots for students and families because students are so pragmatic these days. They're very pragmatic about what they want to study. Um, and I think if we don't help them understand, it will, it will diminish the value of their experience and it will also diminish, it will diminish the universities themselves. Well, we've got an interesting future ahead of us and uh, it's always a good reminder to um, focus on what is it that the students want? What do they see as being relevant to them? How can we meet their needs? And at the same time, how can we instill in them the values that are important to us? And um, I'm confident that we can find all of these things. And you, you our conversation today with you uh, reinforces that in my mind. Well, that is a very eloquent way to summarize. I mean, it's our, it's our duty and our obligation. And of course, for me, it was my passion and pleasure to help young people um, discover and build the futures that they saw for themselves. That's why I got up every day, you know, to help a young person achieve their dream of a college education, even if it wasn't always at my school. Yeah, and I, I have a liberal arts degree that it was in philosophy, and sometimes people will ask me about that, and I'll say, I'm a philosopher every day. I read, I think, I analyze, um, I communicate. Those are, those are all things... It's a very practical, career-oriented degree for me, philosophy. That, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely was. Even though it doesn't seem so. Nobody was hiring philosophers, but everybody was hiring people who could think, read, communicate, think, understand, think analyze, sure. yeah, problem-solve. Well, thank you so much, Madeline. It's been a delight visiting with you this morning. Scott and Steve, thank you so much for including me. Thanks for your time. And... Um, I can't wait to see the next things in in the future of Southern Utah. You've been listening to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. We've had as a guest via telephone from Richmond, Virginia today, Madeline Reiner, who is a vice president for consulting and dean of enrollment services at EAB, which is a Washington, D.C.-based consulting firm. We thank Madeline for her kind attention to us today, and we also thank you, our devoted listeners, for lending us your ears. We'll be back with another podcast soon. Stay safe, stay healthy. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Solutions for Higher Education. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript of today's podcast. The original music for this podcast was composed by Jack Barton, a master's degree student in music technology at SUU. For more information about Southern Utah University, please visit www.suu.edu.